You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. How many of you like eating at buffets? Or the sophisticated word, smorgasbord. Don't be bashful, it's okay. It's okay. We're not, this isn't a sermon about gluttony, don't worry. Okay? Yeah, we as a family have had, over years, we go through ebbs and flows of it, but sometimes when the kids were younger, uh, there was, it was a Ryan's, uh, all-you-can-eat buffet. We used to roll in there, and, and our rule was if you didn't, we didn't come out for a couple hours, and if you didn't waddle, you didn't get your money's worth. So we, we really knew how to have our buffets. And we have friends in the East Coast that when Monica and I visit, we all, tradition is we always go to this gigantic uh, Chinese buffet, which is a misnomer. It has every food under the imaginable in the world. It's just massive. And again, it takes us hours to get in and out. Um, so I wanted to sh- begin today by sharing with you my personal rules of engagement for maximizing a buffet, Okay. Um, no matter what else I say, I want something to be worthwhile when you walk out of here. So this is it, okay? Um, first of all, when you, when you enter a buffet and you do it, you go, up to the, you go up to the food counters, whatever they call it, you grab a plate, but you do not put anything on your plate, right? What do you do? You do your reconnaissance. You go and you scout out the whole thing because you need to know what's all the big picture. They put the cheap filler food up front, they put the good stuff at the end. They know you're going to fill up, and they're going to save themselves money. So scout it out. Decide what you're going to have. Okay? Secondly, do not eat food you eat at home often. Okay? I mean, you start off in a buffet, and you load up on salad. Really? Really? You're going to go pay all that money for lettuce? No. No. Don't do that. Um, thirdly, your first trip, your first trip of many, and yes, there will be many, your first trip, take very small, modest portions of a lot of things to make sure that you really like it so that on your second, third, fourth, and on trips, you can focus on those things that are really good, okay? The big mistake is your first time, I think I like this, you load up, and then you don't like it, and you fill yourself up with something. You know, it's horrible, just horrible. Fourth, every trip, and I mean every trip, you put uh, dessert on your plate, and you have dessert, okay? You don't, you don't just eat all these meals and then at the end have a little bit of dessert. That, that's a waste. You get, after every time up there, you have a little bit of dessert, you mix and match the desserts, you enjoy yourself. That's, this is how you can maximize and really enjoy a buffet. So in conclusion, no. Just, here's, why, why am I talking about this? Why am I saying these common sense, silly things about buffets? Because I think, and I think Jesus thinks, that many people, even Christians, have, uh, have a buffet faith. They treat their faith, they treat their beliefs as if it was a buffet, a smorgasbord. They, they scout out their options. They mix and match what they like. They, uh, if it seems mundane or traditional, they avoid it. If they don't enjoy something, or the operative words, if I don't like that, then I don't have to embrace that. A lot of people have a buffet faith. Does that sound like you? Is, do you have a buffet or smorgasbord belief system that you live by, picking and choosing from here and there? Do you reject or, or even just simply ignore the things you don't like to hear? We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the past few, uh, few months, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount because we're preaching through the Gospel according to Matthew. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, after he calls his disciples, he's laying out for three chapters of the book of Matthew what it means to be a follower of Christ. What does it mean to embrace him, embrace the gospel, and then live our lives in light of the kingdom values that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount? 
And all through the sermon, Jesus is laying out, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he's giving these things, and he's calling people to make decisive actions based on those values. So this, is, you, this is true. You get to choose. Are you going to live by this value or not? All the way through it. And, and he said many things. He, he described in the beginning the Beatitudes, the blessings of poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And even those who are persecuted are blessed by God. And then he went on and talked about the calling of being salt and light, that how we live our lives impacts the world around us, and it should impact the world around us in a way that draws attention to God, not ourselves. He goes on from there and talks about the followers of Christ and the law. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he said something that seemed audacious. He said, if our, as followers of Christ, if our righteousness doesn't exceed, if it's not greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, we, we can't be part of the kingdom. And we're like, whoa, 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 what, what's up with that? And, and, and in that, he talks about our, our, our righteousness, our walking with him is greater because it's deeper. It's from the heart. It's not just an outward conformity to a list of rules. It's, it's greater, it's deeper because it's empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, not simply some self-imposed discipline. He went on and dealt with anger. Jesus said it's not okay to stay angry uh, with anybody. You must initiate and seek reconciliation. He dealt with lust. He said that our fantasies impact our realities. We should be willing to go to great lengths to free our minds from dwelling on evil. He talked about divorce. He said that God created marriage, and since he created it, he gets to decide how it works. And we don't get to treat marriage as if it's a commodity or something that we just discard. He went on to talk about our oaths. As followers of Christ, we are to be people who keep our promises and our commitments no matter how little or big. We should have such integrity that our yes is yes and our no is no. Nothing else needs to be said. He went on and talked about retaliation. We we don't repay evil for evil, but when we respond to evil with generous acts of kindness. He went on and said, not only that, but we love our enemies and we do good things to them and for them. Loving those who love us already is no significant achievement. Everybody does that. But if we're part of the kingdom and we're following his values, we love those who hate us because we demonstrate the love that God had has for us. He talked about giving to the needy. Our giving to the needy should be often, it should be generous, and it should be discreet. He talked about prayer. We should pray, our prayers should be concerned more with the Father's will than with our wants. Jesus went on and talked about forgiveness. We should forgive others just as we have been forgiven. And to refuse to forgive is to demonstrate that we really have not experienced God's forgiveness. He goes on and talks about fasting. Uh, Do we, from time to time, intentionally deprive ourselves of things, even good things such as food, so that we develop our attentiveness to God? He went on and talked about material possessions. We cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and material possessions. You need to pick one. And he went on and said, Don't be anxious. Don't focus on the inevitable troubles of life, but instead trust in the care of the generosity of our Heavenly Father. And from there, judging others. Before we condemn other people and try to fix them, we need to be honest and vulnerable about our own crap. And then last week, Josh wrapped up that part of the sermon by saying, uh, which is we know it as the golden rule, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of and the prophets. Now, we can imagine, as we do, we process through those things, and the disciples that heard Jesus, the people, the crowds that heard Jesus, had to sit there and think and churn through those things that they were listening, and as they tried to process it, they said, okay, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing this, I'm not sure about that. What does this look like, look like in our life? Jesus, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? And I think they, just like us, 
treated the sermon, what Jesus, sermon on the Mount, what Jesus had just laid out as a buffet, as a smorgasbord. They maybe, and we're the same way. We say, I, I like what Jesus said about dealing with anxiety and being blessed, but, and, and I'm okay about parts of the prayer thing and not judging others. I can do that. That's okay. But you know what? Loving my enemies, really? No, I, I don't like that. And lust, listen, what happens in my head is my business. It doesn't harm anybody else. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to fall for the lust, the lust stuff either. We, we pick and choose what we think we want to work on and what we don't want to work on. What, what is going to be valuable to us and what's not going to be valuable to us. And Jesus knew that people would have a hard time processing what he said, these kingdom values. So will you stand with me as we read our text for today? We're going to be reading Matthew 7, 13 through 20. Matthew 7, 13 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and every, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. I pray as we work through these, you will open our hearts, our minds to receive what you would have us as each, as individuals, as families, and even as a church, your word for us today. Work through us through your spirit, and we thank you in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus gives a command, goes through the Sermon on the Mount, he's processing it. And in this, in this, in this time, maybe he pauses, he looks through the crowd, and he says, Enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. This, this is the command of the passage. This is the imperative. This is what he wants us to do. Enter through the narrow gate. This is an action to be taken. He's saying there's a lot of choices to be made, and there are right choices, and there are wrong choices, and he's telling us what the right choice is. In verses 13 to 14, um, Jesus is pre- presenting into us two distinct choices, two Two options for one choice. There's one choice to make, and there are only two options. But he uses four different descriptors to drill home what he means. Just, and just instead of saying it once, he says it four times, so we really understand the distinction between the two options. He says there's a, a wide gate and a narrow gate. He says that there is an easy way and there's a hard way. He says that there's a destination of destruction. He says there's a destination of life. He says that there is a crowd and then there is the few. Jesus' command is for us to enter the narrow gate, which implies by default that until a person makes the specific decision to enter the narrow gate, they are by default going through the wide gate and going down the easy way. That is the default step. Everybody, the crowd is going through the wide gate. We have to choose. In fact, Jesus says you have to find the narrow gate and take it. Now, he says there's two gates, and and it's described. So this is a metaphor. This is a descriptor. He he is uh, not just a literal gate, but he he has something in mind that that we would understand in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. The first gate is wide. There's plenty of room. It's convenient. There's no boundaries. There's there's a diversity of options. In our culture, it talks about tolerance and permissiveness. Nothing needs to be left behind when you go through a wide gate. You you can take whatever you want. And, 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 And disciples or people who claim to be followers of Christ to take the wide gate, they can take their desires, their ambitions, their pride, their preferred lifestyle. Just take it with you. 
But then Jesus says there's a narrow gate. He's comparing it to. There's a narrow gate. The narrow gate is limited in room. It's small. The entrance is actually restrictive. Only a, a little bit can go through at a time. The boundaries and limitations are clearly marked. The path is set. The expectations are clear. The gate is narrow because there's nothing that we can do. Our achievements, our possessions, our kind of, there's nothing we can do to get through it. And it's hard. Jesus said they had to find the gate. The big one, it's easy. You just go. You're already in it. But the other one you have to find. Everything needs to be left behind. Our selfish desires, our ambitions, and even if necessary, friends and family. He says there's two ways. Not only is there two gates, but there are two ways. He's reiterating the point. The easy way. It is easy because these are the things that come naturally to us with little effort. That's why it's easy. It's common. It's superficial. It's selfish. It's pleasurable. It's indulgent. But the way of hard is different. It's hard because these things are unnatural to us. It's hard because it cuts, go, it cuts against both our personal and cultural values. The selfless, it needs to be selfless and sacrificial and obedient and dependent. Just think through the Sermon on the Mounts. Things like keep your promises no matter what. Reconcile all relationships no matter what. Give away what you have. Love your enemies. Those are hard things. Left to ourselves, God's way seems overwhelming, but what it does, it brings us face to face with our need for Him. He says there are two destinations. Two destinations. Later in Matthew, Jesus is going to describe these destinations at greater length. But one is of destruction. And I think there's both the present and future experience of this destruction. We experience these things now in different ways. We, many of us have experienced the destructive consequences of our anger, our bitterness, divorce, lust. They have destructive powers now. But Jesus is clearly alluding to what we would describe as hell. That sometime in the future, there's an eternal destination where um, we will go, or those who go there... There will be no relationships. They'll be alone. There will be no love, no beauty, no joy, no peace, and worst of all, no hope. But he compares it with life, a destination of life. And again, I think it's present tense and future. He says we can experience these things. We can experience the blessings of being unburdened by our selfish desires, the healing of estranged relationships, the removal of guilt and shame, we can experience that now. But it's also a future that someday things will change and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. It's an eternal life of experiencing great relationships, not only with God himself, but with other people. It's a place of love, of beauty, of joy, and peace. And he says there's two groups of people on these paths. Two groups of people, again, contrasting. His language is very stark. And one is the many, the crowd, the popular, the fashionable, the status quo, the majority are taking the easy way. And then his other word for describing the other group of people is the few, the very small in number, comparatively to the large number. It's less populated, less popular, less fashionable, and even viewed as radical and extreme, they are the minority. Jesus presents one choice, two options, and only two options, the path to life or the, path, or the highway to hell, which reminded me of an ACDC song. And I'm going to sing it to you right now. I was invited to a karaoke night. I can't make it, so this is it, okay? No, I'm not going to sing it to you, much to my wife's trepidation right now. Um, I'm going to read it to you. Highway to Hell. I was driving around, trying to stay awake a little while back, flipping through the radio stations. I don't listen to the radio once, and boom, this was playing. It's those songs that stick in your head, right? This is one of them. So good luck this afternoon, okay? Living easy, loving free. Season ticket on the one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be. 
taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell, on the highway to hell, highway to hell, I'm on the highway to hell. (laughs) He has a message for us that we need to understand. (laughs) No stop signs, speed limit, nobody's going to slow me down. Like a wheel, going to spin it, nobody's going to mess me around. Hey, Satan, paying my dues, playing in a rocking band. Hey, Mama, look at me. I'm going, I'm going, I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm on a highway to hell, highway to hell, I'm on a highway to hell, highway to hell. Now, this, this is the third verse. Don't stop me. That's it. Don't stop me. And he repeats, I'm on the highway to hell numerous times. And he ends with, I'm going down all the way, I'm on the highway to hell. You know, that's actually a pretty biblical song. He's describing the easy way. All those lyrics fit. Culturally and personally, being faced with a decision like this makes us uncomfortable. I know it does me, has me, over the years. We, we like having a buffet of beliefs, a smorgasbord life. We, we like that. We, we like choices. We, we like options. We like alternatives. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, we would have preferred that he said, I'm an option of many, and I'm an alternative to consider. I am the great recommendation. But he didn't. Jesus presents one choice with two and only two options. There is no option to opt out. You can't avoid the choice. By default, you've already made one by being on the one journey. Every person, every person in this room makes this choice. The command of Jesus is clear. Enter the narrow gate. Do not make a decision. To not make a decision to enter the narrow gate is by fault to make the decision to continue through the wide gate in easy way. And that's, as I thought about this myself and I thought through this, I hope you and we can be honest with this. I think, and I'll speak for myself, I find a resistance to being forced to make this kind of decision. In my pride, in my ego, in my independence. I've wrestled with these kind of passages over the years, and my first response often is that of resistance. Sometimes I'm even going to admit that I, I find it, I'm a little resentful to have to make the decision. Anybody else feel that way? The resistance or the resentment? Like, what, really, Jesus? How about plan C or plan D? I, I can come up with a few options, Jesus. Can we consider those instead? And Jesus says, no. There is no escaping this decision. Jesus says, either you're all in, or you're all out. And this makes us and our culture very, very uncomfortable. Being all in or all out is not something that we like to talk about. All through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was con- confronted us with the necessity of making decisions. Not just believing something to be true, but making decisions. For example, he said that no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one or love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Make a decision. He said all through that. We could paraphrase that. You cannot serve both God and lust. You cannot serve both God and anger. You cannot serve both God and hypocrisy. You can't do both. In our smorgasbord of selfishness and culture, uh, we don't like having our options limited. We don't like that the gospel is exclusive. This is one way to do things. 
either its mess, both in its message and in its response. The gospel is the good news, and it's an announcement of what Jesus Christ, God has done through Jesus Christ. It's an announcement, a declaration of historical facts, that Jesus was a real person who walked in a real life, who died a real death, who rose again from that dead, death. When Peter, in the first, first time the church was founded, Peter went through and the people he's preaching, and he said these words as a summary of the gospel. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in, the, in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite and plan and foreknowledge of God, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing his pangs of death, because it was not possible for it to hold him. That is the gospel. That's the declaration that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. But the response is also part of the message of the gospel. The gospel isn't just that Jesus died for our sins. That's great. But the gospel message is also that it's a call to respond. And Peter continues in that same thing. He said, Now when they, the crowd, heard, heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, like the rest of them, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's a choice. What should we do? Repent and believe, be baptized. Have you made this choice? Have you responded to the gospel that Christ died for your sins? Have you responded? Not just believe that it's true, but responded in repentance and faith to turn away from a life, the, the broad gate and easy road to the narrow way. Sounds old-fashioned. Sounds fire and brimstone. But these are the words of Christ. To respond to the gospel message is a choice we all have to make. Jesus is saying in here, enter through the narrow gate. And Jesus continues. Now, at this point, Jesus has sort of summarized that, enter through the narrow gate. Now he's saying he's going to give us three barriers, three things that get in our way. We're only going to look at one today very briefly. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at the other two. But Jesus knows we struggle with this enter through the narrow gate stuff. And there's three things that get in our way that block the way. Three things that all of us have to work through. The first one he described in the text we already read in verses 15 through 20. Jesus gives a warning. The command is to enter through the gate, but beware. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware. Be on your guard. Be alert. Don't be, don't be careless. Don't be stupid, is what he's saying, my paraphrase. Jesus expects false prophets. The Bible expects that there are going to be people who are lying and manipulative, and they're going to come and speak. They're going to claim to be speaking in the name of God. And he warns us to be vigilant. If you're going to get into the, go through the narrow gate and you're going to go that way, watch out. The first thing that's going to get in your way are liars who are false prophets. The falseness of the prophets. They appear to be real, but they're counterfeit. They're fake. They are pretending. They distort, confuse, contradict, and distract God's truth. Now, he says false prophets. We think of the guy who says, thus saith the Lord, and then you know the whole thing. But... It could be a teacher. It could be a preacher. It could be just anybody who is going to be spreading myths and lies through claiming it to be truth. It could be authors. It could be musicians. It could be celebrities. So let's not limit his warning of false prophets to this, this very small group of people that we think of when we think of prophets. Primarily in our day, they would be people of influence, people of authors and preachers and stuff, but other people too. And they're deceptive. They're dangerous. By warning us of these false prophets, Jesus is implying that there's a standard. If they're false, something has to be true. If I'm saying there is a narrow way, enter through the narrow gate, watch out for these false people, the false truths. There must be a true to compare it with. Right? Makes sense. And where do we get that truth? It's from the Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. We teach this through RET, through other teachings. The Bible tells us what is true, what is not true, 
what not to do and what to do. That's why we would always at Red Sea, we always going back and preaching through the Scriptures. Even when we did a series last year on the culture, speaking a lot about the cultural topics that you asked us to address, the very first sermon in that series was, this is the Bible and this is what we believe about the Bible because whatever the topic is in the culture we're going to deal with, we're going to pay, point to the Bible and say, what does it say first? So Jesus is saying, there is truth. Now, Jesus then changes metaphors in midstream. He's Jesus. He gets to do that. Okay? Uh, he's changed twice, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. A wolf may disguise himself, but a tree cannot. For those who are alert, false teachers will be found out. All through the Bible, has, the Bible has a lot to say about false prophets, false teachers. We're not going to go look at all those. We're not, Paul has a lot to say, Peter has a lot to say, Jesus has a lot of other things to say. But we're not going to look at those. And this is why. Jesus said this at this point in his sermon. He must be connecting it to something specific that he just said. Right? He says, enter through the narrow gate, watch out for false prophets. So, a false prophet, a false teacher, someone who is claiming to speak the truth, but really is going to cause people to go the other direction. False teachers emphasize that there will be a wide gate and an easy way. They will say that, they will say that the warnings about destruction, they're exaggerated, they're misunderstood, they're not real. They'll say that, and, and their validity for what they're saying is true is the crowds who applaud them and say, good job, we like what you say. That's the signs of a false prophet. And that's what we're going to focus on just very briefly here. False teachers are people who deceptively and maliciously twist God's word. So as I was thinking through an example, the first one that came to my mind was the one, is the first example of it in Scripture, and that is that of Satan in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. In the garden, God created man and woman. He created man, and he sets him in there, and he says, the Lord God, in Genesis 2, says the Lord God took man and put him in the garden, and he worked it and keep it. They have a responsibility. You have work. Work isn't part of the curse. Work is something we are commissioned by God to do. We are to steward what he's given us. And, he, and God commanded the man and says to him, you, are surely, you may surely eat from every tree of the garden, but, the not, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. In his generosity, you can have the whole world. I'm asking you not to do one thing. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. The rest of the world is yours. A little while later, Satan comes to deceive. He's a false prophet. He comes and he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's lying. God said you can eat of every tree in the garden except one. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the, tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She also is misquoting God. God, she, she moved it from being the knowledge of tree, good and evil to being the tree that's in the middle of the garden, its location. Then she says, we're not allowed to touch it or we'll die. God never said they could touch it. They could touch it. They could put a swing in it. They could build a tree house in it. They could do anything they want in it. They could, um, and, um, but she misquotes God. She twists it. And then the serpent said to her, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. He denies that there'll be destruction. He denies that there'll be destruction. <laughs> now, that's just an example. Eyes up here, guys. It reminds me of the good old days, of, never mind. The earlier years of Red Sea. Um, false prophets quote scripture, they twist it. The people who believe them quote scripture and they twist it. And they lie. And they believe the lie. But the flip side of this, there's a flip side to this that we should not uh, ignore. And that is, for every false prophet there is a ready audience seeking out what they have to say. 
Paul warned Timothy. Later, near the ends of Timothy's life, Paul's life, he says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Why, Paul? Why does Timothy have to work so hard in proclaiming the truth of the Scripture to people? Why is it such a big deal? Paul continues and explains to us why. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, healthy, right teaching. They won't put up with it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion and will turn away from from listening to the truth and wander off to myths. The reality is there is a crowd on the broad way, and they like hearing the lies. We sometimes have to be aware of what we're listening to, not just to determine if it's truth, but also as a touchstone for our own hearts. Do we like the lies? Do we, are we attracted to what they have to say? That's what Paul's warning us on. Do, do our passions draw us that we prefer a different message than the gospel. I want to give two examples of things that I hear frequently these days. Two examples that um, are severe twisting of scriptures. They have huge audiences. Most of those audiences claim to be Christians. I'm not judging whether they are or not, but they claim to be Christians. And also, the messages that these the purveyors of these false things say, really do have a draw to our own hearts. The first one is one that I I hear frequently through my reading, through uh, I listen to podcasts and messages, and, and that is, God is love, and that's true. Therefore, since God is love, that's who defines what God is, therefore, there cannot be a wrath of God or hell. It cannot be. If God's love, those don't exist. They can't exist. Because that would mean if there was wrath, if there was hell, if there was judgment, that would mean that God is angry, that God is mean, that God is hateful. I heard one guy say, if, if, if there is punishment for sin, that makes God an angry, evil beast, and I cannot believe in a God like that. Well, if God was mean, angry, I would have a hard time too. But that's not the scriptural teaching. And, and many of these people have taken it one step further and said very articulately and very strongly that God would not punish Jesus for our sins. That's unethical. That, as one person famously called it, cosmic child abuse. A father would not punish an innocent son for somebody else's crimes. It's a misunderstanding of what the gospel is, but that's what they say. So therefore, that Christ died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins to secure our guilt and shame, is not true. One of the famous articulates of this is Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins. Huge bestseller a couple years ago. Um, And in a... um, a review of that book, Kevin DeYoung from the Gospel Coalition, he wrote, the, this is his opening to the review. This is Kevin DeYoung talking about the book Love Wins by Rob Bell. Love Wins by Pastor Rob Bell is, as the subtitle suggests, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Pretty ambitious book. Here's the gist. Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who, who die unready for God's love. Hell is what we make of heaven when we cannot accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy. But hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize that he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. 
There will be no eternal conscious torment. God God says to God says no to injustice in the age to come, but he does not pour out wrath. We bring the temporary sufferings upon ourselves, and he certainly does not punish for eternity. In the end, love wins. DeYoung continues. He says, Bell correctly notes many times that God is love. He also observes that Jesus is Jewish, that the resurrection is important, and that the phrase personal relationship with God is not in the Bible. He usually makes his argument by referring to Scripture. He is easy to read and obviously feels very deeply for those who have been wronged or seem to be on the outside looking in. All commendable traits. Unfortunately, Dion continues, beyond this, there are dozens of problems with love wins. The theology is heterodox, not orthodox, it's not sound, it's mixture of a lot of other things is what he's saying. History is inaccurate, the impact on souls is devastating, and the use of scripture is indefensible. Worst of all, love wins, demeans the cross, and misrepresents God's character. Rob Bell represents those who say, if God is love, then all those other things can't be true regardless of what the scripture has to say, then they have to dance around the scripture to come and support their facts. I was driving, and I listen to podcasts a lot when I drive. I drive long distances sometimes, and I sometimes to keep me awake, because I know I'm going to be driving late at night, I load my podcasts up with guys I normally listen to. Keeps the blood going, and I stay awake. I was listening to a couple, one time, a number of guys off this podcast, and one of this guy, he spent 45 minutes. It was mind-boggling. But he spent 45 minutes saying that what we understand is God's wrath, we, we misunderstand it. The churches for 2,000 years understand it, but now he has clarity on it. See, the word for the God's wrath means God's intense emotion of love towards us, not, not punishment. And he gets that because the, word, the Greek word for the, the, the word wrath is derived from is the word, Greek word, I, I don't remember the pronunciation, orge or something like that. We get the word orgasm and orgy from. So therefore, based on that, wrath must be an intense, since God is love, an intense love towards us. This, this was amazing how he did this. The, the, and this is where I start yelling at the player. And wish I was, you know, it wasn't a podcast. I could call up and say, what are you, an idiot? I'd be more tactful. No, I wouldn't be more tactful. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say we're saved by God's wrath. The Bible says that because of God's love, we're saved from his wrath. You really have to twist hard to come up with that kind of stuff. And yet, it's based on the same thing. If God is love, then all that other stuff can't be true. I don't like it. I'm not going to believe it. Let's come up with another option. The, The problem with these guys, and I hear them over and over again, if God is love then there can't be judgment, there can't be wrath, it can't be that way, because the tension is that would make God an angry, hateful God. That's nonsense. The opposite of love is not that God has to be angry and hateful. The tension of the scripture before God and his love is God, his love and God's justice. Not his anger or his hate. His justice. God is holy. God, if, if things go wrong, if there's sin, that must be accounted for. We know the sense of justice. We're created in God's image. And when somebody does something wrong to us, anything, verbally, physically, whatever, they rip us off, inside us wells up anger because we say to ourselves, somebody has to pay. That's justice. Because we're made in the image of God. God says, you know what? They have wronged me. Somebody has to pay. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay for it myself. That's not a hateful, angry God. I'm going to pay the debt myself? That's actually an expression of love. Paul says that God did that to demonstrate his love for us, that Christ died for us, and to show that his own righteousness, that he would be both the just and the justifier. So when we hear people talking about God as love, yes, he is. But if the next phrase is, but he can't do these other things, then we have robbed the cross. We have robbed the gospel. And we are still in our guilt and the shame. God might, might, must, must, may love us, but we're still stuck. 
That is extremely prevalent in our culture today. The second one is, I'm not going to spend as much time on it, the other one is what's known as the health-wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, the positive confession gospel. Simply put, God wants believers to be physically healthy, materially wealthy, personally happy. Period. Those are the metrics. Personal health, material wealth, and the wealthier you are, the more spiritually mature you are, the more faith you have, and your happiness is the metric that you judge everything by. Teachers of this prosperity gospel encourage their followers to pray for and even demand material flourishing from God. Five characteristics. I was reading recently an article about this. Five characteristics. The Abrahamic covenant means material entitlement. When God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and the whole world's going to be blessed, and God gave him land and, and things, well, therefore, we get land and things. Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. Poverty is redefined as a sin, not the consequence of sin. If Jesus died for sins, he, that means he paid for po- poverty. That means if you paid for that, you need to be wealthy if you're a Christian. Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. You, I, listening to a guy, a couple, it's been a couple of years, but you give $10, you get 100 You give 100 so you can get 1000 You give 1000 so you can get 10000 It's simple math of faith. Faith is self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity, and prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. Once we pray and we have faith, God must answer our prayer, according to them. It's a false gospel, though. It's a false gospel. It's a faulty view of our relationship between God and man, and simply prosperity of the gospel. If it's true, this, the gospel message, grace is obsolete, God is irrelevant, and man is the measure of all things. That's not the gospel. And God becomes, as one author put it, a, a cosmic bellhop attending to the needs of his creation. Now, you think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, first of all, I think it does appeal to our hearts. I I don't know about you, but I kind of like to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. There is an appeal to that. The second thing is, it's huge in the sense of numbers of people in America and worldwide who embrace this. Think of the cultures of Africa and Latin America who have been struggling with poverty for a long time, now through the internet and media and stuff, they hear a message, you know what? God has a plan, your poverty is sin, there's an answer for it, you need to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. It's, it's just proliferating all over the place. It's a false gospel. It's a wide gate, easy way. Now, Jesus gives us this warning. Why does he warn us about false prophets? Those are just two simple examples, two prevalent in our culture examples. Enter through the narrow gate, And the primary way we be aware of false prophets is really, really simple. We know the true gospel. We focus on the true gospel. And I'm going to read a summary from Ephesians 2 of the gospel. Somebody asked me recently or mentioned to me recently, you know, Royce, you read Ephesians 2 a lot to us as a church. You, You read that summary of the gospel to us frequently. I mean, I could start quoting it to you. That might be a good thing. Why do churches recite creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed? Why do they recite the Lord's Prayer, which are good things to do? Because you can walk away and for the rest of your life you can recite it. We want the gospel to be that thing of this church. So if we're going to know, beware, what, we're going to know what the narrow gate is, we need to know the gospel, the true gospel. If we need to be aware of false prophets who would get in our way of living according to that way, we need to know the true gospel. And this is one summary of that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I now invite you to participate in that gospel message, reminding ourselves of that as we take communion. We're going to continue with singing a song in response and and, and how awesome God is and his work for us. But I invite you, if you have heard the gospel and responded to the gospel, specifically personally, in repentance and faith, I believe that. I know it's true for me. I turn from the world and I'm going to pursue God's forgiveness. Pursue it in the sense of receiving it and living in it. We welcome you to take communion and remind yourself of God's love for you, but not only his love, his generosity and his justice that was taken care of on your behalf. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are always good and loving and just. Lord, I pray as we process through it's the message of Christ as his call for us to follow in his, uh, his example into the kingdom values, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us not to be fearful or resistant, but Lord, through trust in the working of your Holy Spirit and confidence in your sufficiency in the gospel and the Christ and the cross, that Lord, we would be excited and bold and live in our lives for you, not to earn your favor, but because we are already your workmanship and you have created things for us to do that reflect your generosity to us in Christ. And it's his, in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.